The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was relationships, and the Bonhoeffer Project, led by Bill Hull, hosted a track called Going Upstream in Disciple Making. Bill Hull and his co-author, Ben Sobels, have written a book called The Discipleship Gospel. Since it's a discipleship.org resource, we've made available for free the primer for this book. The premise of the book is that many people try to make disciples without first making sure that people believe the right gospel, one that leads to discipleship. It's called Upstream Theology, according to the authors. This is the discipleship gospel, which is really the gospel that Jesus preached. In their book, they clearly lay out the gospel that Jesus preached according to scripture and how you can teach this gospel that leads to discipleship. Download the primer for this book at discipleship.org gospel. That's discipleship.org gospel for your free primer. Now here's today's track session from the Bonhoeffer Project. So we're going to start off, it's the morning session, so I thought I'd start with a short devotional. It's going to sound like a really nice devotional at the beginning, and then it's going to have a terrifying twist. Is that okay? So let's go. This is actually going to be familiar language from the forum yesterday. Bobby kind of shared these commandments a couple of times. So we're reading out of Mark chapter 12, verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and all the understanding and all the strength and all the love and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, I always normally camp out on the first part of that passage, which is talking about the the greatest commandment and love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. But in about three years ago, I came to the verse 34 where it says, And Jesus saw that he had answered wisely and said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And then the last phrase, it always caught my attention and I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. So the way I traditionally thought through this was when Jesus says to him, hey, you're not far from the kingdom of God. I always took that as like, well done. You're so close. You're nearly there. And then three o'clock in the morning, one morning, sometimes I don't sleep very well. I got a lot of stuff happening in this mind of mine. And sometimes I don't sleep very well. One, one night, and my wife knows this, I can just sit bolt upright, you know, from a total sleep to like this. And and at two, three o'clock in the morning, one night, I sat up and I thought to myself, I'm not sure this is a well done moment. I actually think this might be a warning moment. He says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. That means he's not in the kingdom of God. Like that would be a terrifying moment for me if I thought I'd done really, really good and I'd done everything that I could. And then Jesus says to me, well, you're not far from the kingdom of God. But I'm not in the kingdom of God. And what happened at that that terrifying moment at two o'clock in the morning where everything was in this dreamy, delusional state, it felt very, very clear to me that I want to do my very best as a pastor and as a communicator of the gospel in general to make sure I'm communicating a gospel that's not going to leave people short of the kingdom of God. That I'm not going to leave them not far from the kingdom of God, that I'm going to help them understand, no, here is the pathway into the kingdom of God. So maybe that's not a well done. Like why in verse 34 at the end of it, does it say no one dared to ask him any more questions after that? If it was a well done moment, 
That, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if this, this dreamy, delusional, like, terrifying moment at 2 o'clock in the morning is the right interpretation of this. But for me, when I woke up that night, I was like, one thing I do not want to do is communicate a gospel that leaves people short of the kingdom of God. All right? So that's kind of what the discipleship gospel is all about. Um, I think every one of us in the room would say, if we went to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 3, verse, uh, verse 3 says that the gospel is of first importance. Any disagreements with that? Like, it's the most important thing. Is there anything more important than the, the truths of the gospel? Not according to the Apostle Paul, right? It's of first importance, primary importance, the greatest importance. And then we'd look at Romans chapter uh, 1 and verse 16, which tells us that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And I don't think there'd be any disagreement about those two truths. The gospel is of first importance and it is the power of God for the salvation of any, everyone who believes. So I'm going to have you do an exercise right now. I think most of you have pens and papers or iPads or something that you can write something down. I'm going to give you 60 seconds because I want you to, this whole seminar, this whole breakout is about the gospel and I want to challenge you to wherever you're coming from, whichever ministry you're coming from, go back to your leadership team and ask a really simple question. Just ask, what is the gospel? So I'm going to give you 60 seconds, and I want you just to um, think through, I want you to write down your answer, your response to that question. It's a pretty simple question. But I want to give you something to think through through the rest of this seminar. So I'm going to give you 60 seconds to answer the question, what is the gospel? On your mark, get set, go. All right, so as, as we go through the next uh, 40 minutes or so, we're going to have a panel of three people come up and kind of interact around what we're talking about. And then we're going to have questions and answers at the very end. Uh, but at 8.50, I'm going to have a, like a warning call from Marcy. And that gives me 10 minutes to 9 o'clock. So at 9 o'clock, uh, I want you to be thinking through this between now and 9 o'clock. All right? Your response to the, the question, what is the gospel? And are you preaching a full, a whole, uh, a fully orbed gospel? All right, that's not going to leave people short of the kingdom of God. So as we think about this, the grid of, is your explanation of the gospel clear? Can people understand it? Are you convinced by it? When I, when I ask that, I'm, I'm, I'm asking whether you're convinced that you are preaching the gospel that Jesus preached, not, the, not, not necessarily the gospel that you were taught. Okay, so are you convinced that you are preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached? All right, is it clear? Is it, are you convinced by it? And are you courageously sharing it? Courage. I'd submit to you that the discipleship gospel takes nothing less than it, you being crystal clear on it, than you being convinced that it's the same gospel that Jesus preached, and you're going to need a whole load of courage even preaching it in churches. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Okay, so uh, throughout this, this session, I'm going to ask a couple of times two, two questions and answers. So um, I'm going to give, I've got two books to give away during this session. So I'll just say, hey, is there any questions? And if you ask a question, I'll give you the Discipleship Gospel Workbook. This is uh, the curriculum uh, that we've developed that goes through the Gospel of Mark. Um, it teaches not only what the gospel is, the gospel that Jesus preached, but also how to follow Jesus. It takes you through the whole gospel so that you're, you're actually learning how to follow Jesus from Jesus. So he's the leader of your discipleship group, in a sense. We're just in the group together. There's no leader. He's the leader. So, so this is the curriculum that we've developed to go together with the book, The Discipleship Gospel. So at a couple of different points, I'm going to say, hey, is there any questions? If you ask a question, I'll give you the book. It doesn't matter whether it's a good question or a bad question. There's no bad questions, right? So you just get a book. So I'm going to ask Kim. Uh, no, so, sorry, Jerry at the back. Uh, he's going to read Mark chapter 1 for us. Then Kim's going to read Mark chapter 8 for us. I'm going to suggest to you that it's very clear the gospel that Jesus preached um, through these two passages, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, 
and Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through 31. So listen carefully to what Jerry says, because I think the first four elements we're going to go through on this board, and I'm going to suggest to you that there is seven essential elements, seven essential elements to the gospel Jesus preached. You're going to hear all seven in these two passages and what these these seven elements are this is not the fullness of the gospel but this is the framework around which you build the gospel these are the these are the seven essential elements of the gospel that Jesus preached so Jerry if you'd read Mark chapter 1 verses 20, uh, 14 through 17 all right so right there this what one of the unique things about Mark chapter 1 is it expressly tells you this is a gospel passage, right? If you look at verse 14, it says Jesus came preaching the gospel of, the, of God, right? So it's a specific gospel passage. And it's very rare in the gospels for it to tell you that this is a, he, he was preaching the gospel and then actually tell you what he said. It usually just describes Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. But it doesn't tell you what he says. This is one of those passages where he actually, we're actually told what he said. All right? And what was the very first main topic of, the, of Jesus' gospel? Verse 15 tells us it was what? The kingdom of God. All right? The fir- very first thing that Jesus announces about this gospel is the gospel, the gospel is this, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that doesn't necessarily, at hand isn't this necessarily the idea of it's close in time, it's nearness, all right? So he's not saying it's necessarily coming soon, but it's very near, it's at hand, it's almost close enough to touch, it's just about to bust in. The kingdom of God is at hand. That was the very first thing that Jesus started preaching about when he started teaching the kingdom uh, about the gospel. But then in verse uh, 15, it also talks about there was two more elements. And he says, okay, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, repent, repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. All right. Believe in the gospel. Verse 15, then it goes, verse 16, verse 17, Jesus comes in and he sees these fishermen on the side of the, the, of the sea and he says, come, follow me. Repent, believe, and follow Jesus. There's the first four elements of the gospel that Jesus preached. Kingdom of God, repent of sin, believe in the gospel, and follow Jesus. Now, we're going to, I'm going to go through Mark chapter 8 real briefly. And I'm going to ha- have Kim read that. We'll, get, we'll see the fullness of the seven elements. And then I'm going to ask, is there any questions? So that'll be the first thing. Kim, would, if you wouldn't mind reading Mark 8, 27 through 31. Okay. So in those verses, Jesus does a, a really uh, powerful thing. He actually just turns to the 12 disciples and says, who do you say I am? All right. The fascinating thing in Mark's gospel about that is up until Mark chapter 8, until that question, we haven't heard a lick about what the disciples, who they think he is. We've heard a lot from a lot of other people. People of Nazareth say he's just, he's just the carpenter's son. People in Capernaum say he's just a teacher. The demons say he's the Christ. The demons knew who he was. But a bunch of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said he's demon-possessed. So there's been all these opinions about who Jesus is, but we haven't heard one time who the disciples think he is. So it's all been building up to this moment. And finally, the question's asked, but who do you say I am? And who does Peter say he is? The Christ. All right? The anointed king. He's the Christ the anointed king of God's kingdom. That's why that was such a huge deal. The kingdom of God is at hand, but Jesus is the king of that kingdom. So this whole movement through Mark's gospel has been, who is Jesus? And now this is the first time that disciples go, you are the Christ. And then right at that moment, a, a really great thing happens. As soon as he's identified as the Christ, he begins teaching them about his death and his resurrection. So there you have Jesus revealing the next three elements of his gospel. 
He is the Christ. He died on the cross for our sins. He was resurrected from the dead. Now, if you were paying attention in Mark chapter 8, you noticed that this was not a specifically gospel passage. It doesn't say this is part of the gospel. So you might be asking yourself, well, how do we know those three elements are part of the gospel? Because the the ones in Mark chapter 1, it actually says this is the gospel that he preached. Mark chapter 8, it's not that clear. It doesn't say that. But I want you to to write down uh, 1 Corinthians First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 starts out, Hey, this is the gospel that we preach to you. This is the gospel that you receive. This is the gospel that you are being saved by if you continue in it. That's an interesting little phrase. This is the gospel. Okay? And it go, launches in in... And then it says, this is the gospel that is of first importance. We looked at that earlier. It says that Christ, Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. All right. Each of these three elements that Jesus reveals in Mark chapter 8, we find out from the apostles after the resurrection, this is the core of the gospel. It's all about Jesus, all right? So as you process through that, you might be thinking to yourself, well, why didn't Jesus just say, hey, this is the gospel, uh, you know, regarding his, his death and resurrection? And, and that's where I think we've got to come back to where, where did this actually happen? When did this actually happen? It happens a year before he's, he dies, all right, and is resurrected. And we're told continually through Mark's gospel and the other gospels that the disciples never really understood what he was talking about. You're going to die. You're not going to die. Get behind me, Satan. All right. You're going to be resurrected. I have no idea what you're talking about. All right. So Jesus, on on the heels of being pronounced as the Christ, he begins laying the foundations for them to understand that he is the king, but he is a dying, a suffering king. And he's also a resurrected king. All right. They start understanding that in Mark chapter 8. And then in Mark chapter 9, he tells them again. And then in Mark chapter 10, he tells them again. And then he goes dark. He doesn't say another thing about it, his death and resurrection, until his death and resurrection. And then right on the heels of his death and resurrection, it all starts making sense. All the stuff that he's been telling them for the last 12 months starts to make sense to them. All right. So as you think through these seven elements, every single one of them, we're told in the script. See, I can start making up whatever the gospel is by just starting to cite verses. But each one of these seven elements that I'm showing you today, it's the scriptures specifically say these are gospel elements. They right out of the mouth of Jesus and the scripture confirms they're gospel elements. So as we start to unpack that, who, who wants to ask the first question right here? What's your name? Alan. Alan. Yeah, I think, I've, so the question is, um, when in 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about him dying on the cross for our sins and that he was buried and that he was resurrected. Is What's the significance of the burial? And I think the, the significance of it is he was dead. He was really dead. He was dead, dead. There was no life left in him. We actually buried him. And so, so I think it's just the confirmation that he was actually dead. Like, I think there's a sense in which he knew that there was going to be skeptical minds saying, well, he wasn't all the way dead. Have you ever seen, uh, have you ever seen um, Princess Bride? Well, he's mostly dead. He's, you know, you know, I think it was kind of, I think he was kind of thinking about that. Um, so the, the early church is like, you know, because remember, one of the very first things, one of the very first things the Romans did was, well, they just stole his body. Okay, they stole his body. They're saying that he's resurrected. So I think I think the early church got that that his death was a huge, huge deal. It was like a turning point for the gospel. And they wanted to confirm to everybody he died. But let's just confirm. Let's just come back. And he was buried. I mean, he's dead, dead. He wasn't mostly dead. He was dead. And then he's resurrected. So I'm going I'm to keep moving because he got the first question. We're going to have questions and answers at 9 o'clock. You might be able to get the next question. I'm going to go to the very back just for one question just because you look so nice at the back. Not that you other guys don't look nice. But yeah, yeah, right at the very back. Yep. I think, 
I think if you read through all four Gospels, they all, they tell, they all tell you these seven elements in their own language. That makes sense? So, so when John says, believe, this is one of the things that people will say about uh, against this. It says, no, we don't have to repent and we don't have to follow. All we have to do is believe. But if you read through John, I think what you'll find is when John says believe, he doesn't mean just mental assent. He means like your whole life is changing. Like you've left. So when he says to Nicodemus in John 3 and he talks about belief, what would it mean for Nicodemus to believe in Jesus? All right. He would need to leave his Pharisee, his, his Pharisee background and actually start to walk with Jesus. And what would that get him? Rejection. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. So when Jesus says to Nicodemus, believe in me, Nicodemus understood that involved repenting of his old life. He couldn't be a, a, a Pharisee anymore. He needed to start following Jesus. And as he started following Jesus, there was immediate consequences for that there was a cost so Nicodemus understood that so all four gospels use their own language to speak of all these things it's just that in our time Mark Mark makes it very clear the like the full the fullness of all of this for us so how are we doing on time oh my goodness wow we've got a lot to get through all right so here's here's the thing I want you to think about the kingdom of God, it was the first thing that Jesus preached on. It was the last thing he taught on, all right? First announcement that he makes, the kingdom of God is at hand. After his resurrection, we're told in Acts chapter 1, he, he taught for 40 days about what? The kingdom of God, 40 days. Right before he ascends into heaven, the one thing he wants to make sure they're crystal clear on is the kingdom of God. So in between the first and the last, and a hundred times in between, if you read through all four Gospels, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. How often do you hear a Gospel presentation that doesn't say anything about the kingdom of God? Completely miss it. It's not even talked about. So let me ask you a question. Are you preaching the, uh, the Gospel of Jesus... The gospel that Jesus preached, if you're not saying a lick about the kingdom of God, hmm, am I preaching a gospel that's going to leave people short of the kingdom of God if I haven't said anything about the kingdom of God? Huh. The other part of this gospel that's so, so unique in a lot of ways is the emphasis on following Jesus. All right, we live in a culture where we've kind of created what Bill would call the gospel Americana where salvation is seen as a moment in time and you pray a prayer and it's a done deal. Your sins are forgiven, you get a ticket into heaven and now you just have to go to church once in a while and you're good to go. Jesus' gospel, like we just talked about with Nicodemus, wasn't just an invitation to pray a prayer in a moment, it was an invitation to live a whole new life of following Jesus. Look through the Gospels and look how many times Jesus calls people to follow him. He wasn't just calling them to, do, to show me one time in the Gospels where Jesus says, pray a prayer and your sins will be forgiven and you'll be good to go and it doesn't matter what you do after that. All right? So just, just kind of already begin thinking through these, these emphases and uh, we're, we're kind of pressed for time a little bit, but I want to make sure I get to this part. So we start writing on these things, and this is the, the first book that I've written. And so we start getting this feedback after the Discipleship Gospel book came out. And we got like a dozen emails basically saying, this is works righteousness. You are, you are teaching a gospel that is saying, we don't just, we have to do stuff. We have to follow Jesus? That's works salvation. And I was like freaking out. I wanted everyone to love the book. I thought I'd done a whole lot of work on it. I'm a people pleaser. I don't like people not liking me. And here's these these people saying, you're teaching work salvation. And I call up Bill all concerned. And I said to him, hey, have you you read these emails that it's like people are like accusing us of teaching work salvation? And he's like, ha ha, finally we're getting somewhere. (laughs) That didn't help me relax very much. I was actually more concerned at that point. 
But one of the things that, that we need to overlay in this whole um, discussion is I think people think that we are teaching an anti-grace gospel, that this is a works salvation gospel, and it's not. We're actually using the same language that Jesus used. We're calling people to respond to the gospel in, a, in the same way that Jesus responded. So, can you tell me, Marcy, can you tell me when it's uh, 8.58? <laughs> okay. Matthew Bates, if you, if you don't know Matthew Bates, he is really well worth reading. He's got a brilliant mind. Okay, I want you to think through the, the gospel in three categories. He basically says, okay, there's the gospel proper, the gospel proper. Okay, so the gospel at its essence is a proclamation. It is a declaration. That's what it's good news to be proclaimed through the streets, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is the king. He's not your normal king. He died on the cross for your sins. And he's been resurrected from the dead. That's the declaration. That's the gospel proper. Then you have the gospel response. And that's why it says, repent of your sin, believe in the gospel. It's referring back to this declaration and follow me. So you've got the gospel proper, the gospel response, and then you've got gospel benefit. All right. So what are some of the, so maybe the biggest most important one is if you believe in, the, in Jesus and start following him, it just opens up a whole new realm. You're loved by God. You're adopted into his family. You're justified before God. You receive the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Your sins are forgiven. You receive abundance of grace. You receive everything you need, it says, for life and godliness. Everything you need to follow Jesus, you have. All right? So as you think through these categories, how often, okay, how often is, uh, you'll hear in different teaching sessions, justification by faith. That's what the gospel is all about. And I go, well, it's a benefit. It's a massive benefit. But it's not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel isn't about justification. It's about Jesus, who he is and what he's come to do. So justification is massively important. But let's remember, it's a benefit of salvation. The gospel is all about Jesus. Okay? So I know I'm going to ruffle some feathers with all of this, but it's helpful to think in these, these categories, gospel proper, declaration, our responses. This, this declaration demands a response. One way or the other, you either receive it or reject it. But it demands a response. And Jesus makes it crystal clear how we're supposed to respond if we want to begin this new life that he's offering us in him. And if we begin this new life that he's offering, if we, we accept that invitation, we repent of our sin, believe in the gospel and follow Jesus, there's all these benefits. Eternal life, entering into the kingdom of God. Okay? Now, there's another layer here. Thank you for getting that lid for me. There's one more layer here that, that needs to be talked about. All right? And that's where does God's grace fit into all of this? Super, super important. So if you're thinking about salvation as a moment in time where I pray a prayer and we're saved by grace, all right? Yes, that's, that's totally true. Absolutely. But Jesus not only calls us to be saved by grace, but to live in God's grace, right? And if you ask the question, Okay, one of the simple questions that we should all be able to answer is, what is the gospel? Another simple question that we should all be able to answer is, what is grace? What is grace? Okay, I know it's amazing. We sing about it a lot. It's, it's amazing. It's incredible. But what is it? And a lot of the times we know that we're saved by grace or we're converted by grace. But God's grace not only converts us, it not only makes us a new creation, 
God's grace is the power that actually empowers us to live by grace. All right? So, so when Peter talks about God's grace strengthening us, what's he talking about? Oh, I've been saved by grace, but now you need to be strengthened by God's grace. How does, how does this fit with the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a gift, charis, grace. The Holy Spirit is an expression of God's empowering grace in our lives. We receive the Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus, and then the Holy Spirit empowers us to live in God's grace as we live according to the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. All right? So this whole thing, as you look at this, we're not only converted by God's grace, but we're also empowered by God's grace. So what the discipleship gospel does for us, it helps us clarify the gospel that Jesus preached and then pushes our understanding of God's grace. All right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 and 10. All right? Everyone knows 8 and 9, right? We quote it all the time. Saved by grace through faith. It's not of works. All right? It's not, it's not, I can't do this myself. But then verse 10 says, for, what's, what's for stand for in the world of hermeneutics? It communicates purpose. So what's the purpose of me being saved by grace through faith? The purpose of that for, for what? For good works, not just works, for good works. And I'm going to suggest to you there is not one time, show me anywhere in the Bible, show me one time where good works are bad. You won't find one place in the Bible where good works are bad. Works of the flesh are bad. Evil works are bad. Works of the law are bad. Works by themselves are bad because it's, they're my works. But good works are never bad. So let's get the language right. All right? We're actually saved by grace through faith for good works that God has prepared in advance for us before the creation of the world to walk in. What does that sound like? Sounds like following Jesus to me. How do, we, how do we follow Jesus? By the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we engage in, in a life of good works, which aren't bad? Through the empowerment of God's grace. All right? Question time, real quick before we have the panel come up. Right at the very back. Um, yeah, I, I actually just, the way I, the way I define the gospel that, that when I preach it to a, in our congregation, I just always start with the kingdom of God. Um, I actually use that order pretty much. If you look on page 109 of the discipleship gospel, you'll see just a statement that, that we came together on. And it basically has all seven elements, but it fleshes this out a little bit in a 101-word statement of what the gospel is. But I, I just, I present it in that order. Um, one of the questions that comes up sometimes is, is uh, where does sin fit into all of this? All right? Good question. It comes in right here, and it comes in right here. All right? You know, almost every presentation of the gospel I heard for 10 years was, you're a sinner. Right? But Christ died for your sins, so if you receive his salvation, you'll be forgiven, you'll get to go to heaven. I, I don't see Jesus leading with sin until Mark chapter 7, all right? He talks about forgiveness of sins a lot, but then he leans in on the disciples in Mark chapter 7 and he speaks of their evil hearts, all right? He really goes into it. He actually says, okay, you have all these evil thoughts, evil stuff's coming out of your heart, and then he, then he specifically lists 12 sins, 12 disciples, all right? He really leans in, but Mark chapter 7 is like two years into the three years, Right? So the first thing that Jesus leads with is he wants to un them to understand the kingdom. He wants them to understand who he is. He wants to them to understand death, resurrection, all the stuff about him. And then he starts pressing in and saying, but something's wrong, isn't there? Something's wrong in you. There's this sin that just keeps coming up. And then once they understand who he is and what he has the power to do, I mean, how many times have they heard him say, your sins are forgiven by Mark chapter 7 when he starts leaning in? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that the discipleship gospel starts pushing you to think through. Really, the discipleship gospel is just Jesus' kingdom gospel. That's what it is. 
It's leading in with the kingdom of God and helping us develop a fully orbed understanding of what the kingdom of God is. So I'm going to go to our panel right now. I'm going to ask my wife, Joni and Matt and Spencer to come up. They're going to interact with some of the practical questions um, that you were just talking about. What was your name in the back? What was your name? Lewis. Lewis. Thank you, Lewis. Great question. Um, So I'm going to ask... uh, So Matt Kearns, he's one of our regional directors. He was the disciple-making catalyst in in Missouri Baptist Convention for like 15 years. Now he's a local pastor. He's been interacting with these ideas for the last few years. Spencer is a senior pastor of a church in Texas, in Dallas. Um, He's been kind of interacting with this as a a, a leader in a church uh, for the last few years. And Joni has lived through this with me for the last three years. Um, So... Each one of them has a unique perspective and you should just be blessing her and just saying, oh, you poor lady. <laughs> so, so Matt, as you, as you think through all of this and you kind of anticipate some of the sense of what's happening, what reflections do you have about what's going on here from the seat that you sit in? Um, I, um, I guess I can't overemphasize the unlearning, relearning process that had to happen for me. Because of my tradition and background, um, what I uh, was, uh, um, I don't know, drowning in, inundated with, was an understanding of gospel that really was equated with a transactional exchange. And as a result of that, when I started hearing about this, it, it, uh, it, it was a radical departure from just what I was accustomed to. And then when I started doing a little bit of research, uh, you know, just a few years ago, there are all kinds of books out there with gospel (coughs) in the title. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, but the true gospel, you know, Jesus' gospel, the perfect gospel, the gospel of the gospel, there are all kinds of books like that I discovered. And as I started uh, to read a great number of those, I was fascinated to discover uh, in fact, I started, I went back and I, and I made notes that a number of these books on the gospel, I made it halfway through or three quarters of the way through, and I could rarely find a reference to the gospels, which was kind of an eye-opener for me, that we've reached a place now where we could talk about the gospel, but not really talk about what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have left for us that we call the gospels. And that was uh, a moment for me where I'm like, yeah, yeah, we are onto something here because um, there must be a, a, a different look uh, at the gospel if all of our, uh, not all, but a great number of resources that I was reading um, have a limited reference to uh, what the gospel is. So on a real practical level, and if you're sitting in the room and you're going, Really, we're having to start over uh, with this now, or is this just some new revelation that uh, Ben Sobels has come to? No, I think it's been in front of us for a long time, but because of our practice, and in my case, because of my tradition, uh, it was a, a, a new first step or an unlearning and a relearning first step that I, I needed to take. That's, that's probably the place where it started for me. Yeah, I've always been passionate about disciple making. Uh, it's been a... a heartbeat, a a desire, driving force in my ministry. Um, What's been really liberating for me about this is that it's helped me more tightly connect theology to praxis. I think we all would agree and affirm that our theology does drive what we do and how we do it. But I think sometimes in disciple making conversations, we get totally disconnected from any theological foundation. It's all about strategies and methods and are you doing D groups and missional communities? What are you doing? And so this material and being a part of the Bonhoeffer Project has been incredibly helpful for me in a more nuanced way to connect my theology and what I believe to my praxis and how I'm actually living. And so the, the, uh, the Bonhoeffer kind of mandate, the, 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 uh, the banner that flies is the gospel we preach determines the disciples we produce. And the kingdom, that idea for me has been one of the more enlightening ideas to help me. So 2 Samuel 7, so we've been talking a lot about the New Testament. But if you really want to look at the kingdom biblically, there's a rich Old Testament connection to that as well. Um, we were talking about Mark. Somebody asked a question in the back. What about, why is it just in Mark? Well, actually, when, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and Luke 
and announces Jesus' birth, he says he's going to be given the throne of his father, David, and he'll rule forever. And so there's this theme. The reason that's been helpful for me is, is to incorporate that idea into my preaching, into our thinking, and how we talk about it, because I don't think Jesus and Paul should be pitted against one another. I think both of them are emphasizing the importance of a faith that saves us is a faith that transforms us. So when I'm preaching through Colossians 1 this past year with my church, and I come to Colossians 1, I think it's 23, where Paul's saying, you'll be saved, all of these things have been happening. And then he says, if, like 1 Corinthians 15, if you continue in the faith, and, and it kind of made me kind of step back. But if you look at Colossians 1, 13 through 14, he's using kingdom terminology. He says, we've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so for me, the reason that's been helpful is because when I help people understand, as Matt was saying a moment ago, that salvation is not just a transaction. It is a transaction. There's a definitive moment in time when we become Christians, it's also a transport or a transfer of my identity and who I am, that's where the kingdom really becomes helpful. Because I'm telling people, you're moving from a kingdom of darkness that all of us are born into, into a new kingdom. And as citizens of that new kingdom, there's a brand new way that we live. Following Jesus is now what we're a part of as citizens of this new kingdom. So that's the way it's really helped me is connecting theology to praxis, especially with that kingdom thing when it comes to helping people understand what is salvation. It is not just a transaction. It is that. It's just more than that. It's also a transfer of their identity and their position in Christ. So that's some thoughts. That's really good. So one of the things that um, just before we get to Joni, when you start thinking through this grid, you start seeing this all over the place. So Chad Harrington, who is the publisher of the book, he was teaching through uh, Psalm chapter 2. And he says, you can find all seven elements in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2. If you look at Peter's, so this is, this is we've got Jesus and we've got Paul going on in 1 Corinthians 15. If you look at Romans chapter 1, the first like six verses, you're going to see the seven elements in Romans chapter 1. So when he talks about uh, uh, the kingdom of his father David in Romans chapter 1, he is evoking all of this kingdom, throne, eternal throne language of kingdom and Christ in those verses. Then he talks about the obedience of faith. What does that mean, obedience of faith? Paul's not separating obedience from faith. He's saying that they actually go together. So repentance, belief, and following, they all go together. So all these phrases that the the apostles might use slightly different language. So when the apostle Paul um, speaks about the kingdom, like why doesn't the apostle Paul talk about the kingdom very much? Well, he does kind of, but he speaks a lot about creation. So creation, new creation is this whole idea of kingdom as well. And so Paul will talk about you are a new creation, but we are awaiting a new creation. Okay? So it starts pulling together all these different elements. So Romans chapter 1 and then... uh, Acts chapter 2. Look through Acts chapter 2 and Peter's sermon there. You'll, you'll see all seven elements right there. Um, kingdom, Christ, death, resurrection, repent, believe, and follow. They're all there. So, so it is beginning to be a pervasive thing. So the reason why I wanted Joni uh, to come up here was because this has all sorts of ramifications all right, for practice. And, and so we've got a couple of pastors up here, but Joni... She works at a, an exercise place uh, on Thursdays and Fridays part-time, which puts her around about 100 ladies from like 18 years old to 80 years old, and they're, they're screaming unbelievers, all right? They don't know how lost they are. And so part of what happens when you believe in a full-bodied gospel is you're not just looking to pray a prayer with a lady. You're actually willing to walk with them for years, if, if that's what it takes, because we're on this journey with Jesus. Well, good morning. Um, yeah, I work at a place called Cycle Bar. Cycle Bar, like bikes, bikes, not Psycho Bar. <laughs> Cycle Bar. And um, most of the girls that I work with are in their 20s, and they are in a rough culture. I mean, it's so promiscuous and just crazy. And I didn't know why I was there, but the Lord really put me in this mission field to, for these relationships. We get there really early in the morning, 6.30 in the morning. And um, I have so much fun with these girls. That's where it starts, is I 
I have so much fun with them. I get there at 6.30 and we're dancing and laughing and having a great time. But And then they open up to me and they tell me and I just uh, about their lives and I just see how broken they are. Um, these girls are, a lot of them have really complicated family structures. They are encouraged by their parents what, to be what I would call promiscuous, what their parents call free. Um, it's, it's shocking to me. I love being there. It is a mission field. So um, they, I mean, I'm the oldest one that works there. And they all call me mama. And I really am interested in their stories. And I really want to hear their hearts. And they respond. You would not believe how much they respond to somebody who just loves them. So, I mean, I tell them I love them all the time. And um, so some specific examples. <coughs> Are one of the gals, um, she was raised in a saloon, a bar, over, or over a bar, you know, in an apartment with her father over her bar, over a bar, doesn't know her mother. Um, and we would, it's very small in there. So our laundry room where we're doing towels and stuff like that is, two of us can kind of squeeze in there. And I had just been loving on her for weeks. And um, one time she got about six inches from my face and said, I just need Jesus, don't I? And I said, yes, baby, you need Jesus. And so it was just beautiful. Um, another one of the girls, um, she will just say, a couple weeks ago, she just said, can I just come hang out with you and Ben? I just, I just want to, and I said, what do you want to do? And she goes, I don't know, I just, I just want to hang out with you guys. I mean, it's, we're bringing in something that they're just so unfamiliar with, this love and, um, and Jesus. They know that I'm all about Jesus. Um, and... What was the other example I wanted to tell you? Oh, Topanga. I wanted to tell you about Topanga. Um, that's really her name. I mean, Topanga. So these are the these girls. Um, uh, she was raised also in a really rough situation. She doesn't know her parents, raised by an auntie. Um, and she texts me almost every night just to say, I love you. And just to hear back where I just say, I love you too. And I, there's just such a need for people to know Jesus and the, the love of Jesus. Um, and Topanga, one time, just last week, she was driving down to L.A., and she said, will you bless my drive? And I walked away, and I thought, wait, wait what did she say? Did I, will I bless your drive? So I came back, and I said, what do you mean, will I bless your drive? Do you want me to pray with you? And she goes, oh, I don't, well, I don't think I want you to pray with me, but I just bless it. Can it just be blessed? And so I said, I think I need to pray for you. I mean, I just need to pray over this drive. So, I mean, it's just that kind of, like, really have no reference for Jesus, have no reference for what... Um, what I'm talking about with them, but they're getting there. Um, two, two other people that are just quickly, one that, that Ben wanted me to tell you about, Barbara. She's um, a little bit older than me. She's one of the writers, doesn't work there, but is one of the writers. And she and another a childhood friend of mine. So I, I invited Barbara to Bible study. I was starting a new Bible study. I'm always inviting all the ladies to Bible study, but Barbara's the first one who's come, but I, I, I love that she's come. So she has come, and that's the first time she's been in that kind of a situation. And the other gal that's in that Bible study with us is a friend of mine from childhood who's a recovering alcoholic. And she keeps track of her um, time. They both keep track of their time in Bible study with us for a year and two months, just like um, my, my friend that's a recovering alcoholic keeps track of her sobriety. And so just quickly, one of them, Barbara, has said in the last year and two months, ever since she's been in Bible study, that her life has changed so much that her old friends are not friendly with her anymore. You know, they, they don't really want this new Barbara anymore, um, but she's loving. She says, she, we know her better than her friends that have known her for 30 years. Um, and then Sonia, the other one that's a recovering alcoholic, dear friend of mine from childhood, she just said to me the other day, she said, when I went to the world, they told me I need alcohol. When I went to the doctor, he told me I needed a pill every day. And then I finally came to you and I just, we just, I just need Jesus. He was always the answer, wasn't he? And so those are, that's just the relational part of, of all of this. So I get to incorporate all of this once they're in a group with me. Mm. But the, the cycle bar is more just the loving on and, and anticipating eventually being able to share this with them. Just one quick thought about faith. Um, I get a lot of pushback from people who say, why are you adding repentance? And Ben, you mentioned this a moment ago. Why are you talking about repentance when it comes to responding to the gospel? And one of the ways I've tried to get at that is by really saying, I think we have a very narrow, shallow view of faith. I think one of the reasons this rubs us the wrong way is what you said a minute ago, Ben. Faith for a lot of people is intellectual assent. It's awareness of. And so I think that's why the words trust 
dependence, reliance to help fill out and clarify what we mean by faith can really help people. So that's been a helpful strategy for me in the Bonhoeffer Project as a leader of cohorts with pastors who come in and say, I think I'm going to get fired if I start talking about it this way to talk about faith. I had a guy that had a meeting with some members of our church. He had the courage. Some members of his church approached him about him preaching works-based righteousness. And the first thing I said is talk about what they mean by faith. And they didn't get any further than that in the conversation because they weren't on the same page about what faith actually is. So I think that's important. Yeah, you just pointed to uh, courage. So just on a real earthy grassroots level, uh, what I would say is if you're willing to step into this conversation, uh, just be prepared. Uh, Do the work to prepare your heart. I think there's a lot of effort on our part to prepare our minds and to have a proper understanding and definition and to get all of the answers correct. And then when you step into reality, uh, the first thing that comes under assault can be your heart. Um, uh, All of this is theory outside of our lives being directed by the Holy Spirit of God. And for me, the way that's been fleshed out is in the last three years, I've had nine phone calls from brothers, not just people I heard about or know about, but friends of mine, uh, pastor friends, uh, youth pastor friends uh, who have called me to say, I'm out. Uh, seven of the nine because they'd had an affair and uh, the other two uh, because they had made really poor decisions financially. All of the rest of this becomes theory if we're not walking in the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, I don't want you to skip over because Ben kind of said something in passing and every time I hear him talk about it, I hear something different. And uh, he said, maybe some of the greatest opposition we're going to receive is uh, I don't find that in places like what Joni's talking about or with lost people in my community or my neighbors, I don't find uh, opposition there. The greatest opposition that I face to these kinds of things are people who've been churched for so long and have never really understood what the gospel is. And that's not just their fault. Uh, They're they're doing what we've taught, Um, but uh, it takes some time and courage and patience to to walk through the unlearned learning process and the relearning process in order to get back. And so just prepare uh, for lots of pushback in that arena. The good news is if you don't have time for that, just uh, find lost people because I don't find that a lot of them want to have arguments with uh, over, over some of the things that we're talking about here. Uh, they just want to know if there's any hope uh, for them. Mm-hmm. Johnny, any final thoughts? Oh, I know. It's just one of the things that you often say is um, if, you know, when you said you could be fired mm-hmm. for this, um, Ben often will say, if I'm going to be fired, I want to be fired for something awesome yeah. Yeah. like this. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to go to questions and answers right now. One of the things, um, one of the things I just want to say about the, the curriculum that we've just developed, it's not just like a Bible study. Uh, every, every, so you read through Mark chapter 1, we look for something Jesus is saying or doing, and we try to put that into practice immediately. So Mark chapter 5, it's the one I always share because it, it's the most vivid. Mark chapter 5, Jesus takes the disciples to the other side. Three times it says he takes them to the other side, to the, the man uh, in the Gerizines, the unclean land, the unclean spirits, the unclean pigs and the unclean tombs um, with the there was another there's five unclean things uh, what is it Blood. what Blood. 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 yeah just yucky uncleanness who are the disciples they're clean right they're clean Jews the last place they want to go is the other side it's super unclean it's like a bath in uncleanness so Jesus takes the disciples to the other side they interact with this crazy demon possessed man who he, Jesus sends uh, back to the ten cities the Decapolis and, and two chapters later this one man's proclaimed the whole gospel to ten cities and they're rushing out to him alright the whole point of Mark 5 is he's taken the disciples to the other side so at the end of our study of Mark chapter 5 we ask where's the other side in our community where's the one place none of us want to go where are the who are the people none of us would normally even want to talk to where is that place and usually it ends up being Soledad Street which is where the drug addicts the homeless people the prostitutes it's it's just a it's a bath of uncleanness all right let's go there so we go there with our discipleship group. The last group that we, we went through, I went through with, uh, was three carpenters. We actually went to the homeless shelter right there on Soledad Street. One of the guys, uh, 
taught at nighttime, we fed all the 60 guys, we slept at the homeless shelter, we woke up, another guy taught um, the, the Bible teaching the next day, then we fed all the guys. And let me tell you, those three guys, all four of us, we'll never forget that encounter with the other side. And the most important part of that is that we're reading what Jesus did with his disciples. We're not just learning about the gospel. It's not just all theory. We're seeing what Jesus said to do and doing it. We're seeing what he did and doing it, putting it into practice, which creates the tension of obedience. So we're not separating faith from obedience anymore. To to be faithful is to put these things into practice immediately. And when you get a new believer or an unbeliever and you put him in that environment, he starts understanding immediately what following Jesus is and what it means to to have the faith of obedience or the obedience of faith because he's actually just saying, okay, Jesus said it, now I'm doing it. How am I doing it? I'm doing it by faith. Bill. We're out of time. So I I think I've got got, got seven minutes, right? Okay. Can I just get two questions? Okay, I'll, 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 get, I'll get the giveaways, right? Okay. Okay. Seven minutes. Okay, first question. Quick question. Why do you think Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, and all these guys do what they do? Is it out of ignorance? Is it just because they want to see the numbers or what? I don't know. I, I think their hearts are... I think their hearts are, I mean, their hearts are there. Yeah. And I, I think there's a tradition of, you know, Bill talks about in conversion and discipleship that we've, we've supplemented the plan of salvation for the gospel. And the plan of salvation is part of the gospel, but we've made the plan of salvation the gospel. Um, so I think their hearts are in the right place. I think tons of people have got saved through, through their ministries. I have, a man, an enormous respect for Billy Graham. He's one of my heroes. Um, I think the way that we're sharing the gospel now is very different from 60 years ago. I think it's very relational now, and I think the stadium thing is, is a lot less effective in a lot of arenas. If you track Luis Palau's ministry, you'll see he's going to a lot um, more relational approach than a stadium approach now. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I'm not, I'm, I don't really have a great answer for that. Right here in the middle. Yeah, so the first part of your question is about the kingdom and how do we get... I think, I think if you just start pe- taking people through the Gospels, first of all, and showing them that Jesus actually talked a, like a hundred times about the kingdom, like the kingdom is something that we have to get our heads around, and then you start reading through the scriptures like Spencer talked about, and you start seeing kingdom right from the... You start seeing kingdom in Genesis chapter 1, where, where God creates all these realms in the first three days, And then in the next three days, four, five, and six, he creates the rulers of those realms. There is this idea of kingdom from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So there's no story that I can tell for a a democratic thing except to have the renewal of your mind through the transformation of the scripture. Um, The second part of the question, yeah, I think if, so these seven elements, they're just a framework. All right. So if you look at the definition that we have on page 109 of the book, you'll see that there is this idea of the Holy Spirit, the, the ascension, the second coming of Christ, the last judgment. There is this, the fullness of that is all there. But this is, these are the, these are the, this is enough for now. <laughs> um, the fullness of the gospel, you, I mean, the reason why the gospels are called the gospels is because they communicate the fullness of the gospel. So the best way to, and that's why we wrote the curriculum all through the gospel of Mark, right, was because if you really want to understand what it means to follow Jesus, what the fullness of the gospel is, you've got to read through a gospel. So we can have our definitions, but the fullness of the gospel comes when we understand what Jesus is doing through the gospels. And then you read through the whole scripture and it starts filling out the whole idea. I want to do one more question, then Jim's going to do some giveaways. It was the red t-shirt right here, right behind that guy. I'm just, yeah, so, so Romans 10, 9 is totally true, right? Um, confess with your mouth that, that uh, confess in your heart, it, what is it? Believe in your heart, confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved, right? Yeah, I think that there's all these short statements of what salvation is and, and to believe in Jesus. Jesus says believe a lot. And doesn't talk about repentance or following or all these other things, but the, it's it's the idea that we have we understand these things as a full thing. And if we have an understanding in Romans 10 of what the fullness of the gospel is, because he's been he's been teaching us what the gospel is for 10 chapters, right? 
And then he quotes this verse from the Old Testament and he says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then he's, un- he's building on the 10 chapters before. He's not saying, because we usually cite Romans 10, 9. And we go, you just have to believe. Believe what? Everything I've been teaching for the last 10 chapters. So we can't divorce the one vo- verse from everything he's been sharing because Romans 1 through Romans 16 teaches all this Romans chapter 1 the first six verses teaches the fullness of this so if we've got that understanding being built up over 10 chapters over 16 chapters really then when he says believe you're not thinking believe you're thinking all of it you've been listening to the disciple makers podcast the message you just heard was from the Bonhoeffer project and their track called going upstream in disciple making Download a free ebook primer for Bill Hull and Ben Sobel's book, The Discipleship Gospel, by going to discipleship.org/gospel. That's discipleship.org/gospel. You'll find dozens of other great discipleship resources at discipleship.org as well. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.